You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Hello, everyone. This is episode 18 of Notes from Norwich. We are back in the swing of things, back uh, recording, back with uh, functional audio, back with nobody traveling, back with nobody sick. It's all coming together. And so here we are at the end of September 2020. It's raining outside, and I'm here virtually with my very good friends, Jan and Marguerite. How are you two doing? Doing well. Excited for Michaelmas tomorrow. We're recording on Monday. Are we? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Michaelmas is tomorrow. Tomorrow is, is Michaelmas. I'm, I'm excited as well. Marguerite, it's you tweeted that you go all out for this feast. I do. You, is this one of your favorites? Um, Michael the Archangel was my late brother's favorite saint. And he, though not a particularly religious person, was always just, just loved the story of Michael, loved everything, and always said that if he ever had a son, he would name him Michael. And he did. And he did name him Michael. And of about two years ago, and this is long after Jim was, was gone, um, I wrote to this nephew of mine, Michael, and said, by the way, do you know that your father's reason for naming you Michael, et cetera, et cetera, and Mike, Michael, the archangel's favorite saint, and I sent him my holy card of Michael with a prayer on the back, and Michael, of course, replied to me and said that he had no idea. He had no idea that this is how he got his name, that this was his father's favorite saint. And, you know, he obviously wow. thanked me. I just like, anyway, I'm, well, I was very glad that I thought to do that after years. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, I, I do. I do. It's a deep family me, connection. You know, a groovy guy, so. Yeah. So, so when you say you go out all out for it, do you decorate? Do you have oh, special no, 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 no. special I, foods I that you cook? <laughs> no, 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 no. I just I think about it all day long, and I make I say the prayer, and I remember my brother, and yeah. I was baptized in the Church of Saint Michael and All Angels in Amersham on the Hill in Buckinghamshire, in uh, wow. back in England. Um, and so, yeah, so one of you said Michaelmas and the other one said Michaelmas. So which, which is it? We can start. I'm going to guess that Marguerite is correct because I was not <laughs> raised Anglican or Roman Catholic. I will put a, uh, when, when I tweet out about this episode, I'll put a poll up and we'll see how, how do you pronounce <laughs> right, it? Michaelmas right, or yeah. Michaelmas? <laughs> That'll sort of flame more. I've, I've only yeah. ever heard Michaelmas, but I've. I mean, it's not it's not that big a a feast in the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, really? It's a bigger yeah. feast in the Anglican Church. Um, the first half of the school year is called the Michaelmas half. Yeah. And the second half of the school year is called the the Lenten half. And there's a purple aster called Michaelmas daisies. Oh. That are in bloom right now, in okay. my garden and elsewhere in town. So. So as usual, Marguerite is almost definitely right. <laughs> I'm shaking my head now. I <laughs> so anyway. So uh, here we are well, at episode that. 18. What we're doing uh, today for those of you um, listeners who are reading along with us, we're covering the second half of chapter 39. And hopefully we'll get to chapter 40. So if you're using the orange book, the... Uh, the Paraclete Essentials Deluxe Edition version of this book that's broken up into uh, readings. This is reading 79 and 80 and 81. But chapters 39, the second half of chapter 39 and chapter 40. And this um, this is, as Marguerite said right before we started recording, I hope we'll be done with sin today. Yes, I hope we're all done with sin Um you know, as, as a species sooner or later, but, uh, these, this, this is, uh, this is the last, uh, movement of a whole, uh, orchestral suite that Julian has composed for us about, um, about a reflection on sin. So 
shall we just jump in? Where shall we yeah. jump in? And if you don't have the orange book, where we're picking up, she starts, by contrition, we are made pure. By compassion, we are made ready. And by true yearning for God, we are made worthy. And I read that, and I realized that that is a reference back to, I think it's chapter two, um, where she's laying out the wounds that she asked for from God. Um, so she, she desired three gifts. One was the memory of his passion. One was a bodily sickness and youth at the age of 30. And then the third, which is the only one that endured in her mind, was the gift of three wounds. And on the orange book, it's page seven. I conceived a mighty desire to receive three wounds while I was alive. That is to say, the wound of true contrition, the wound of natural compassion, and the wound of earnest yearning for God. And so this, uh, this towards the end of her treatise on sin, she's hearkening back to the petition that led to this whole thing, um, which I just, I thought was a fascinating, um, fascinating reference, internal reference. And then so she talks about these wounds as the means by which we come to heaven. These are the working out of our salvation. And so that kind of, that kind of casts her, petition her original petition for me in a in a new light that she is she's not just asking for these wounds in the abstract she's she's asking for her salvation to be worked out while she's still alive now ever since pseudo dionysius in the western church there has been a division of the spiritual life the process of perfection in the spiritual life into three um uh, not stages in the sense that they are linear progression, but three um phases of modes. growth modes uh the uh the purgative the illuminative, and the unitive mode the idea that first there's a well that there is a stage of purging ourselves of our sins and our uh tendency our habits towards sinfulness. And then there's the illuminative, illuminative mode where we are gaining uh, the habits, the virtuous habits, where we are becoming attuned to um, right living and right action and right thoughts and right practices and, and right spiritual awareness that leads us um, into a kind of new humanity, having purged ourselves of the old humanity and then the unitive mode where we are finally prepared for, um, for union with God for nothing less than union with God. And these are the three uh, ways of perfection and, and all, countless spiritual writers have, um, have fleshed out their own take on, on this, kind of threefold process. Is it too much to say that this is related? These three means that Julian lists can be roughly linked to those three stages? Because it appears that way to me, but I don't know if that's just the filter of me having come to this reading countless other kind of mystical writers. So I tend to see these three things everywhere. Would Julian have seen it? I think there is a connection, certainly. And, and I don't think that like most spiritual writers do conceive of it strictly as a progression from one to another. But I think um, Julian, and, and this will, I think, come more clearly in chapter 40, Julian sees it as a constantly repeating process. Um, so not only does she not see it as a strict progression, but she sees all three of these as constantly being the work of the spiritual life. Um, so I, I think as, as in, insofar as they're like three modes 
of engaging in spiritual growth, I think that that, that is a connection with what Julian is saying. Um, but I, I don't think that she would see them, see one as a natural progression or a further advancement than another. Marguerite, you're nodding. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with the idea that um, the ways of achieving spirituality are not steps in the sense that you do this and then you're ready to do that and then you're ready to do that. And I know that a lot of spiritual writers have said that, have, have, have phrased it that way and have, have expressed it that way. Um, it, it just doesn't, it, it hasn't worked in my life and I, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me and it could just be, you know, personal for me. But for Julian, um, I think that she would definitely have to say that these three things keep happening and rehappening and happening in different ways. She sees things in threes a lot, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I think we all do, this is even before Hegel, but um, but I, I don't think she sees I don't think she sees them as as steps, and and I, I certainly don't either. Um, yeah, I've always been kind of put off by the idea that you, the idea of spiritual growth being, you do one thing and then you're done with that. And then you do another thing and then you're done with that. I'm, I'm more of a spirally kind of person where things just keep repeating, but at a different level or at a different, um, in a different way. And with a different feel to them, too. I can't think of anyone who says that you are done with one, but that the first two kind of play off each other. The purgation and illumination becomes a cycle that eventually prepares for the the unitive, but you can't really leap ahead to the unitive. You can't begin to enter the more sublime levels of union with God until you've done a certain amount of um, kind of basic soul work, or you can maybe be given that as a gift from God, but um, anyway. Let, let's go back to that when we get into chapter 40, because I think Julian says some things that have bearing on that. Um, mm-hmm. I am curious um, she talks about these things as wounds. Yeah. Uh, so she talks about the, the, so, okay. So she talks about our wounds being seen before God, not as wounds, but as awards. Um, and it was actually that language of wounds that made me realize she was referencing chapter two. Um, and so this idea of like wounds being seen but not being seen as sin or as sorrow or pain or blame brings to mind the, the, for me, the wounds of Christ in the resurrected, in his resurrected body, that the, that the the marks of the nails and the spear are still there, um, but have been radically transformed. I am curious to hear your thoughts on How are these three things, contrition, compassion, and yearning, wounds? And how do they tie into these wounds that are seen before God, not as wounds, but awards, after the soul is healed? I think that Julian sees sin as hurting us. I mean, I was brought up to, to believe that sin hurt God. I mean, not that you can hurt God, but it, it it did hurt God and it made him angry. And But she sees sin as, as something that hurts us, that causes us pain, that causes, that, that opens us, that, that wounds us. And a wound is an opening. And so if, 
you have this opening, that's a way for God's grace to come into you. Mm. And um, I don't know, I think, I think I've hit a wall there, but I certainly if, if these wounds open you, open you to contrition, open you to, to compassion and open you to a yearning for God, then they are, they are blessings. They are, Mm -hmm. they are, they are graces. Yeah. They're all three different ways of being vulnerable. A word that I just looked it up um, because I didn't want to be wrong about it. A word that comes from the Latin word vulnus, meaning a wound. Um, So contrition is the vulnerability of admitting that I am imperfect. Mm -hmm. And I like to build um, very strong fortresses in my own mind that I am, in fact, perfect. And every time I consciously confess that I'm not, it's tearing down that fortress and I build it for my own consolation and I'm aware of that. So contrition is a vulnerability of um, admitting my own limitations. Compassion is a vulnerability because it opens our, uh, if we allow ourselves to feel loving tenderness for any other human being, then it automatically opens us up to be hurt by them as well. So compassion is the necessary precursor to the school of love, but it is also um, hand, freely handing out, uh, um, like hidden entrances to our armor, and it just means that we're surrounded by ways uh, for people to hurt us. As anyone who's ever had broken heart uh, will know. Um, and then yearning for God is, I guess, in a sense, the kind of the combination of those first two, this admission that not only am I not perfect because of all the things that I do, but I'm not perfect because I'm, I have to express my need for God. And, you know, the oldest sin, the sin that was repeated in, with the Tower of Babel and the sin that's been repeated countless times is that humans are convinced that we can get by without God. And so admitting that we need God, admitting that we almost, whether we want to or not, we, the yearning that we have in us is actually a yearning for God is just really uh, kind of the ultimate vulnerability. Um, And that gets turned into grace, I think, by the recognition that um, that it's actually no bad thing to be in relationships with people, with God, with the creation around us. But we live in this um, illusion that we can somehow live without suffering and without dependence and without connection. And without hurt. And as far as I can tell, that's not possible. (laughs) It's a big part of what Julian is treating all the way through this meditation. So So vulnerability, I think. So it's through those vulnerabilities that the soul is healed. So it's, it's, and I think, yeah, so it is through those vulnerabilities and then to use Marguerite's language of opening, which I think is good. It's it, that vulnerability opens us to grace that transforms the, these wounds into honors. She, I mean, she says all shame shall be transformed to honor and more joy. Um, In order, in order that we may always be in the peace and love that are always in us. It's the paradox of this whole Christian life, right? That it's the weakness that reveals strength, and it's the shame that reveals honor. 
It's the cross that reveals uh, glory and it's death that leads to life beyond our concept of what life is. So we live in this kind of illusory world that is based on all these expectations and God is in, in Christ saying that all of the expectations are falsehoods and need to be rebuilt, but that you can't rebuild them without a certain amount of uh, destruction, deconstruction. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah. I was thinking about the, that her, her statement that peace and love are always in us existing and working, but we are not always in peace and love. And then, however, God wishes that we take heed in this way. And again and again, I see her like bringing this theme of attention and noticing and looking. Um, that, that this is already the reality and that God's will is that we see that this is already the reality. That, that the work, the work is, the work unfolds in our acceptance that the work is unfolding. Yes, yes, absolutely. That is that is Julian's thing. That everything that we need, we have. That everything that we're going to be, we already are. And that, um, the perfection and the kingdom of God is is all around us and in us. But we just have to, we just have to find out about it. Mm-hmm. And whatever things we do in order to do that, that's, that's what we'll do. And ultimately, of course, we will. Ultimately, God will win. And it is through looking to Jesus on the cross. Like, that is how, that is how we we realize this, that our, our coming, our coming to know that this is already happening happens through looking to Jesus on the cross. Behold thy maker and thy savior. There was a scene. I don't know if you have seen jaws recently or remember it very well, but, Okay. Um, well, maybe some of our listeners will, and I'll be very quick. But at the very beginning, there's this girl swimming, and then a shark comes along and attacks her. And what does she do? She immediately bursts into an act of contrition. Oh, my God, I'm heartily sorry that I have offended thee. And boom, she's down. That's it. That's the end of her. What is she doing when she's doing that? She is trying to avoid hell. He is making this act of contrition as like her last ditch attempt to avoid hell. And that has always bothered me so much because it's like, oh, good, here's a movie and it says the truth about religion. But it's it's a lie about religion. It's just a great big fat lie about it. And the what this... And I, I hope, I mean, obviously this is just a story, but if it were true, I hope that that girl would have somehow realized at some point in her last few seconds the truth of her soul and the truth of God. But as it was portrayed, we have we have an angry God that is just, you know, just given her like the few seconds to be able to say the right words so that she doesn't get you know, sent to burning hell forever. Just anyway, Julian wouldn't have liked that. I didn't like it either. Well, Julian's big on contrition, don't you think? She is, but I don't think that was contrition, Chris. It's not, con- it's not was- contrition as fire insurance. Right. It was, it it's was contrition as restoration words. of right relationship. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. She was just well, this fear. She was she was afraid. She wasn't reaching out to God. She was afraid for herself. And she was brought up to be afraid. I mean, you know, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. Believe me. 
I don't feel comfortable judging the state of her soul. <laughs> I think it's hard to know when what is motivated by fear and self-interest and what is motivated by genuine desire well, for transformation. Yes, but in a movie it was it was pretty yeah. it was quite clear. So, so speaking of contrition, so chapter 40 mm-hmm. brings us into this sort of progression. Um, so this starts off a supreme friendship of our gracious Lord, which I feel like there's a lot packed into that word friendship that I'm not sure how to tease out. Um, but he protects us so tenderly while we are in sin. Furthermore, God touches us and shows us our sin. And then so there's this, this revelation of our sin in, by the sweet light of mercy and grace. And then there's this sense of guilt. We see ourselves so foul. We imagine God is angry with us. And then the Holy Spirit guides us to contrition, by contrition to the prayer and the desire to amend our life. And then we have hope that God has forgiven our sins and it is true. So there, there's this like, I mean, there, there is some progression for you. Like there's this illumination of sin leading through contrition into a hope that God forgives our sins. And then an assurance from Julian, it is true. Um, what is interesting to me is, uh, this linking of contrition and prayer. And this, this, I see this chapter as sort of her transition between her treatise on sin to her treatise on prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, Because she many times throughout this, this chapter starts to tease the concept of prayer. Um, But it's, uh, if, if we had the three wounds in the last chapter, contrition, compassion, and yearning, and I think we see later that yearning and prayer are closely linked, perhaps so closely linked as to be identified, um, the, the order gets mixed up here. It's, it's contrition to prayer and then to hope and compassion. Mm. Um, And I, I say that just to kind of underline why I'm reading this as not not actually a progression. Like like the three wounds aren't actually a progression. This is a this is sort of an Ouroboros, like feeding in on itself. Um that that each each leads into the other, it seems. And so it, towards the bottom of that page, in this way are sins forgiven by mercy and grace and our soul honorably received in joy as often as it comes by the virtue, gracious working of the Holy Spirit and the virtue of Christ's passion. And that's, that sentence, I see this, like she, she's portraying this as a, a repeating process. We are always, again and again, through these three wounds, through the action of the Holy Spirit, coming into a restoration of this awareness. So I, I see these, these three components, the, the contrition, the compassion, and the yearning, um, which I, I think might might at first glance match on to the, the purgative I'm blanking on the, the names of the, the modes. Illuminative and unitive. Yes, that's right. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I, I really don't think that Julian sees them as a progression so much as 
just all feeding into one another. Well, when she says, my dearly beloved, and this is in the middle of that page, my dearly beloved, I am glad that thou hast come to me in all thy woe. I have always been with thee. And now thou seest my loving and we are one in bliss. So what God is saying to her is that it's always been. You know, as we were saying before, it's it is a constant thing. It is it is a a standard a standard truth that God is always with us and loving us and wanting us and the 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 grace of the spirit, the gift of the spirit to bring us to contrition when we sin is 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 part of our continuous repeated opening opening to god i looked up the word contrition a while ago and it's it's it has a latin root and it comes from the latin um oops it comes from the latin uh contrarere it's a past participle of contrarere the the infinitive contrarere which means to crush or to grind Hmm. so the action of the spirit to bring us to contrition is, I mean, that's why sin is painful to us because we, we feel that. And so we are, we are crushed. We are ground. We are, um, that, that feeling that you get when you have sinned is, is a gift from the spirit. And the closer you are to God, the the more keenly you will feel that crushing and that grinding that comes from contrition even you know even even what would in normal terms of the world be considered a minor sin some unkind word about somebody can feel can feel just devastating i mean it can feel like a like a a sword going into your stomach So, so for Julian to to map that out for us is is her way of of showing that that this is this is the process that every that every soul in Christ must go through and wants to go through and should go through and is glad to go through. I think. Julian talks in this chapter 40 about in in a few different places about a sense of rest and rest in soul and quietness and conscience is uh, is what she says um, a few lines in, in that first paragraph. And then a little bit further on uh, here, I understand truly that everything is prepared for us by the great goodness of God to such an extent that Whenever we are ourselves in peace and love, we are truly safe. By which I interpret that to mean whenever we have a sense of that calm wholeness that you get when everything settles down and the anxiety retreats and you feel at rest in your soul and quietness and conscience. So there's a couple of, and then she goes on a little bit, later to talk about um, all this spiritual comfort that is spoken of. So she's talking about this emotional quality of awareness of uh, the, 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 the effect on our feelings and on our bodies that, uh, that is a side effect of an awareness, a consciousness of God's presence in our lives. So is the problem that we are unaware of what's really going on with us or is the problem that we are actually 
we are actually sliding back and forth, you know, within the cosmic um, story of reality, sliding back and forth between, you know, danger and safety. Or are we really safe? And the problem is our perception of sliding back and forth between danger and safety. Mm. If that makes sense. That does. And I think it, um, I think this relates to the question, is Julian a universalist? In that she does not answer it. But I think she gives us tools for coming up with an answer. Um, so the, the notion the notion of our souls being in danger um, I think starts to morph if you move into a universalist frame um, because the nat- the nature of the danger is different um, if in, in universalist frames, the danger is not eternal damnation. It is some sort of purgation. Um, so I think, um, the, the way I would take from Julian to answer that question, like, are we, are we sliding back and forth or are we always there? Um, I think I would say that um, we are always there on an ontological level, that in our beings, we are one with God. We slide back and forth on um, how perfectly we realize, and I don't just mean like cognitively realize, but in our actions, we realize that fundamental reality of being one with God. And that realizing that imperfectly creates misery. And, and Julian, Julian's like the the wound of sin is wounding ourselves because we fail to perceive and live in accord with this fundamental reality. Um, but I don't think it endangers that fundamental reality that that we are one with God in Christ. The, the the danger that comes out of that is the danger of the misery we inflict on ourselves. Mm-hmm. The danger is the the pain of sin, not endangering our status as being one with God. That's that's how I would take. I don't think Julian answers that question, but that's how I would take hmm. machinery from Julian to to answer that. How does that sound? It sounds pretty good. Um, she says, "Okay, for if before we were laid all the pains in hell and in purgatory and on earth, death." and all the rest over against sin, we ought rather to choose all that pain than sin, because sin is so vile and so much to be hated that it cannot be compared to any pain if that pain is not sin. So what she's saying is is that sin is the worst pain, the worst thing that you can possibly endure is to be in sin. And she says, just a little after that, to me was shown no more cruel hell than sin. Right. There is no pain except sin. Right. 
and all is good except sin, and nothing is evil except sin. Right. So what would, thought experiment, what would Julian do with our religious pluralism of the current age? If somebody were to come to Julian and to the three of us and say, I no longer find uh, meaning or safety or security in church as I have experienced it, I'm going to go become a Zen Buddhist because I find a greater sense of relief from suffering in what they tell me. Would Julian say, that's fine. Your soul is ultimately secure in God. So during the course of this life, whatever brings you peace in your soul is fine. Or is there actually a like a is there actually a lasting consequence to that choice? What do you mean by lasting consequence? Does that, that actually? I, th- I think that that is a term that that the con the consequence mm-hmm. that's a term that gets thrown around in. Is there any problem with it? Too. Yeah. Is there any problem with it? Would you say? Fine. Whatever makes you happy. Well, I would never say fine. Whatever makes you happy. <laughs> and and Julian, she didn't live in a, as far as she knew anyway, um, in a pluralistic religious environment. I mean, there was just one church, and that was it. And there were there weren't any options. I mean, I don't. I find it very hard to imagine that she could have conceived mm-hmm. of anything like Zen Buddhism. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> you know, I mean, the Lollards were happening when she was there, and they, but they just wanted the Bible. Yeah. They weren't really trying to be a different. Uh, so I, it's, it, I can't answer that. Jayan probably can. Though, he can. I, I don't think. Um, her goal is whatever makes you feel good. Her goal is not, as I read it, feeling good. But if her goal is to encourage us to alter our perceptions, if it's, if, if there isn't anything more than how we, handle the transformation of our perceptions. And she's saying that there is a whole framework for our perception where we are led to contrition and then into prayer and then into a sense of consolation. If we're led to these three means uh, back in chapter 39 um, that are at least in part about seeing the world differently and realizing that we are all already given everything we need. But beyond that perception, there's a reality which can't change because we're already taken care of in God. I, th- I think then, yeah. then is, is there more to life than the perception? I, I, th- I think we, we have to not like her concern is not perception in the abstract. It is, it is, it is, this awareness is never, never an awareness of everything being okay in the abstract. It is always grounded in the cross. And I think we always have to look back at what kicked this whole thing off. The, I, I, the more I read Julian, the more I'm convinced that like that moment is an interpretive key for the whole thing the curate holding the crucifix before her face. Behold your maker and your savior. And it is from that moment that all of this flows. And I think, I think for Julian, this, this assurance, this perception is meaningless without the cross. None, none of it makes sense without the cross. And so I don't think she would see any solace any lasting real solace 
in an abstracted notion that we're all okay. It's, and that's, that's why I say it's not about feeling good. It is about abiding. It's, more, it's about abiding in this reality of the cross. Um, but what and, would have happened to Julian if she had never been shown the cross? Or for all those people who have never heard of Christianity? Are they... She, I mean, she does not answer that. She doesn't. That, that goes back to the universalism question. Yeah, but the whole thing of this, these, these few chapters, depending on whether we buy into universalism or not, to me, changes a whole bunch of other stuff. It's like, uh, you know, one setting then flips all the other settings all the way down. And I don't have an answer to it, but, I mean, it's, it's complicated. If, you know, is it perception or is it ontology? Is, is it possible for uh, salvation to be lost? Is it possible um, that what is going to happen is going to happen and we have absolutely no influence over it other than to become aware of the story and to deal with the experience of our own lives. I mean, and this is, this is the, the stuff that every world religion has been wrestling with because these are essential, like, existential dilemmas. Are you in control of your own life? Do you have any influence over your own life? Are you just along for the ride? Is it, uh, are we dealing with tinkering with perception or are we dealing with um, the outcome of, of your story? Um, it's all well, very complicated stuff. <laughs> it sure is. And whether we're dealing with something in an abstract, um, ultimate reality, ultimate result, mm-hmm. ultimate final thing, or whether we're dealing with an actual human being's path through their life, It's you can you can lose one or the other, but it's whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and I think Julian would say that. I think that I think that she would definitely say that. God is in charge and God is going to make everything happen. She always talked about how everything comes from God. But an actual human being can choose to to be one with God, can can choose to live in God, can choose to stand in front of the cross and make that his or her life or they can, this person can, can be absent from that, but to be absent from that would take away meaning, would take away truth, would take away the gut level of anybody's actual life. And they would just be going through the motions of, you know, making dinner and, toasting your bread and raking the lawn. And I mean, why? Well, it's, it's the, the whole meaning framework that makes the most sense to us. But my Buddhist friends say Christianity, it doesn't make much sense to me, but Buddhism is where I find my sense of that's where life comes alive and everything makes sense. Well, I think so I was just talking to one of them last week, which is why I'm, I'm chewing on all of this. <laughs> for me, as a, you know, for, for me, if that person is, if that person is feeling meaning and truth in their life and enlightenment through their practice, then I have, I have no, 
I have no condemnation of that person. I mean, I have a very, very dear friend who's a Zen Buddhist. And I turn to him all the time for spiritual help. I would, I would say I don't have condemnation for them. And I believe that ultimately all of that will be rooted in the cross. And this yeah. is, this is where like, I firmly believe that all salvation is through the cross. And I, I mean, I am, I am a purgatorial universalist. I think that if a Zen Buddhist dies, that's not the end of the story as far as the working out of the, the effects of the cross in that person's life. Um, and so I hold no condemnation for them. I, and, and I believe, <laughs> I'm perhaps unfortunate enough to believe that salvation is through Christ and that ultimately any, any solace we get in this life is, is an echo from that. And, and we are, we are called to cleave ever more closely to the cross. And some of us grow to cleave to it as closely as Julian did in this life. And I think others don't cleave to it until after death. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think a lot of it does hinge on, a lot of how you read this does hinge on how you answer the universalism question. But that's how I answer it, and then that's how I make sense of the rest of it. I think, um, I think all of this has to tie back to the cross. And Julian sees it all as tying back to the cross. And in situations where in this life it does not apparently tie back to the cross, it will eventually be shown to, to be rooted in the person of Jesus. I actually think that's where Julian would wind up as well. But I've always wondered if I think that because... I want Julian to agree with me <laughs> and Julian doesn't answer it. Yeah. Well, Jesus died in this world and the cross is there and there really aren't any exceptions to it. I mean, Jesus, the son of God is incarnate in this world as a human being and dies on the cross, bringing all men to himself, as it says, then there, there just there aren't there, there are no exceptions. It's everyone, whether whether they've ever heard of Jesus or not, whether they lived a thousand, two thousand years before him, whether they lived twenty thousand years after him, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's the crux of the pondering. If it doesn't matter, then what does it matter that I put all this effort into this church life now? If I'm drawn to it because it gives me a sense of fulfillment, then wonderful. But is there more to it than that? Because if I'm if if I'm saved one way or another. Well, I think I think she gets she gets at this. Um, she does. In in, I mean, so she asks basically the equivalent of Paul's. What should we then let sin abound? Um, yeah. Which I think is a another way of getting at this question of does it matter? Mm-hmm. Um, and and her answer is n- no. Like, and, and so so here I think we sin needs to be tied back to this notion of attention and knowledge of the one in. And it's not that sin doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And and our call is to hate sin for the sake of love alone. 
we sin is still present it still causes pain it still causes misery and that can only be dissolved or shown to be false in the person of Jesus in this in the root of this oneing and we are we are called to hate sin for the sake of this love and that that's the difference i see it making i it, it may not make a difference in the eternal destination but it does make a difference in the journey towards that eternal destination and that i and i think that the the peace that comes from cleaving to the cross in this life is qualitatively different from any other kind of peace and solace and feel good yes have having and i and i say that having been a part of most major world religions at some point in my life and having found solace in all of them mm-hmm. that it is most potently most clearly most abidingly present when we cleave to the cross and that matters that makes this matter even in this life whether whether we respond with this love-filled yearning with our lord jesus it matters so if only that poor young lady in jaws had started the process earlier she would have ended her life not in fear but in wonder at this beautiful shark yeah i mean unironically yes <laughs> yeah Well, we're not um, to die not in fear and wonder, but in gratitude, in in knowledge that we are held by virtue of the cross. No more than his love for us is broken off because of our sin, so no more will he so no more does he will that our love for ourselves or our fellow Christians be broken off. that is that is the working out of this awareness of our being one in the cross and that's at the that's the, that's at the end of chapter 40 that our our we we are one by virtue of the cross that that is the ontological reality and we we we're not going to escape that i don't think in julian's mind we are called to hate sin and cleave ever closer to the cross so that we grow deeper in our love for ourselves and our fellow christians and that those are the stakes for it in in this life and that that's if if we need an incentive to to sign on to this project of the christian spiritual life in this life that that's it um that is that is the witness that is what we are called into in this work and that i think can only happen in any abiding way by cleaving to the cross amen all right see you next week that seems like a good place to end so <laughs> I'm just going to hit stop now. Bye listeners. Bye. Hopefully hopefully we'll be back next week, but uh we'll just have to see. It's been a fall. Well, thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the Revelations of Divine Love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.